This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 27th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, I talk with staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel about what we now know about keeping schools safe during the coronavirus pandemic. Also this week, we learn why in temperate forests, autumn leaves fall when they do. Is it the changing temperature, the short days, or have the trees just captured all the carbon they're going to for the year? In our book segment, Kiki Sanford talks with author Ruth DeVries about her book, What Would Nature Do? A Guide for Our Uncertain Times. We last checked in on schools and COVID-19, on the podcast anyway, in July. At that point, we had some information about spread. This was based on schools that stayed open throughout spring and those that didn't. Now in the fall term and a second wave, what do we know? Staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel and contributing correspondent Gretchen Vogel have an update in this week's issue. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. It's really great to see this article come out. I feel like we have not a lot of information about schools and a lot of people making a lot of different decisions. Is now a good time to do this follow-up story? Now is a good time. And one reason for that is that many more schools have opened than opened in the spring. And we have schools now open in areas with high transmission, which is different. It offered us an opportunity to really learn about what's happening in those schools, how are they coping, and what are researchers trying to learn from them. What do you think are the biggest changes since your last piece on this? What do we know a lot more about now than we did then? I would say there are certain things that we strongly suspected then that have been reinforced since. And so one is, thankfully, most kids really do not get very sick from COVID-19. There are exceptions, but in general, they don't. So that is very good news. And that has truly held up over the months. Another is that when we think about schools, you know, one of the big concerns was outbreaks in schools, the spread of virus through a school. Mm -hmm. And while we're still, you know, really trying to learn about that, I would say that right now, outbreaks in schools appear 
to be less common than they had been initially feared to be. So that's another thing that we, I think, have have learned, especially in, in high transmission areas. We do know that kids are not getting very, very sick if they do contract coronavirus. But do we know if they're transmitting it to each other, you know, at the same rate as adults would or to to their teachers in their classroom or to their families at home? That has been a really big question since the start of this pandemic. How much of a vector are kids? Are they are they catching the virus to the same degree, even if they're not getting really sick? And if they do get infected, are they transmitting it to the same degree? And I would say, you know, we still really don't know the answer to that. I think there have been a number of studies that suggest that younger kids in particular, kids under about 10, and it's not like we're talking about a clear cutoff, it's sort of a gradient, but that's roughly where people put the line. So kids under 10, studies have shown, appear less likely to get infected and potentially transmit the virus. But then there are other studies that do not show this and that show that younger kids are just as likely to be infected and to transmit SARS-CoV-2. So I would say, honestly, we really don't know. And there are strong feelings on both sides here. Some people really think that younger kids are less likely to transmit and others just say, we truly do not know that yet. So I feel like the jury is still out on that one. You break your story out into some big questions that people have whenever they think about coronavirus in schools. And so I just want to take those one at a time. And the first one is, are we going to see outbreaks at schools? We put that question first because it's on so many people's minds, you know, parents sending their kids to school, people working in schools, communities as a whole. How common are these outbreaks in schools? That is such a big question. I would say two things. I would say the data do appear to be hopeful. There have been some studies and some data gathering that underscore that. One example we found was in North Carolina, where there's a big consortium among researchers and schools trying to study COVID-19 in schools. They found very few instances of transmission within a school. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is really heartening. At the same time, we found that data is being collected less consistently and not being shared consistently either. And that has been a concern to many people. And that's true across countries. It's not country specific. So I think a lot of people working in this area really thought that by now we would have more information on patterns of viral spread through schools and the degree to which that happens. And it's still very limited. And I think part of that is that health departments may just be overwhelmed. We're not doing these big studies in schools or we haven't done them to the point where we have results. And also there's definitely issues around sharing data that allow other people to really analyze it. One of the big questions around that is, does a school being open change how we feel about how safe it is? So your kids are in school. Well, are they also in sports? Are they also doing extracurriculars? This is just normal life again, right? So that was something that Gretchen and I have seen, I think, on a personal level, and it was something we wanted to look at. You know, and it's a little bit squishy. I don't think there's one answer. Every family is different. But I think that psychologists do agree that when we think about risk and we think about how schools communicate and just what it means to be in school, there's a lot that goes along with being in school in normal times, like carpools and birthday parties and high schoolers dating each other. There's so many ancillary parts of school beyond just the classroom. So the question is, do open schools change risk perception and change behavior? And I think to some degree they probably do. And they also may offer more opportunities for people to get together, for example, through school sports. Is that opening the door for spread in a way that schools themselves don't do? That is definitely a big worry. And I think we have seen that 
to a degree, yes, that a lot of the cases among young people are being tied to gatherings outside of school, to carpools, to sports, either school-affiliated sports or just sports leagues that, that aren't connected to school but that are running right now. So definitely, I think there's a real concern about these out-of-school activities, some of which are very much tied to schools and others of which may just have kind of resumed along with schools that are fueling new cases. You talk about how classrooms, how students, how staff can stay safe in an open school. And one of the topics you tackle is air circulation, keeping the air low on exhaled viral particles. What are some of the approaches that have been working from that? And how important is it compared to, say, wearing a mask and social distancing? Yeah, the topic of ventilation is something we were excited to look at. We had not reported on this earlier. And like you say, it's it's talked about a lot in schools you know, all around the world. How much do we need to ventilate classrooms? What can we do if a classroom isn't naturally well ventilated? How much fresh air is enough, essentially? We really tried our best to get at some of that. What we find is some of what's already known, which is in general, you want to enhance the flow of outdoor air into a room and then remove the indoor air because the goal is to minimize what people are breathing out before other people can breathe that in in case there's virus there. So you're trying to get that air out of the room. In many schools that do have windows and, you know, often multiple windows in a classroom, especially in Europe, they're really opening those windows. Kids are often in their winter coats in class right now because it's getting colder in many parts of Europe. They're certainly encouraged to wear whatever they need to wear to stay warm in class. For schools, and there are many of these schools as well, either don't have windows or don't have windows that open in classrooms, there are a number of efforts to try and help them ventilate their space. For example, with a fan with a filter that can clean indoor air, and those kinds of fans are already used in parts of the world where there might be a forest fire or air pollution or something else that pollutes your indoor air. You can use a fan with a filter to clean it. That's one thing we found. Another really interesting thing we found is that, you know, you can do these detailed sort of exhaustive calculations for different indoor spaces to try and calculate how much do we need to ventilate, how many centimeters do we need to open our windows, that kind of thing. And that can be helpful, but no one's going to be doing that for every classroom. It's just not practical. What some scientists are reporting is a simple alternative, which is high-quality carbon dioxide monitors they cost between $100 and $150 normally. And the reasoning for that is that when we exhale, we exhale CO2 naturally. And so measuring CO2 levels in a space can kind of serve as a proxy for how well you're ventilating. So if your CO2 levels are high, that means you're not cleaning out that indoor air as much as you might like. And if your CO2 levels are low, that means you're, you're doing a good job of that. Does this make much of a difference if the students and the staff are all wearing masks? What people talk about a lot with schools and just in general with mitigating the transmission of COVID is sort of this layered protection. The more layers you have, the more different things you're doing at once, the more powerful your protection is. So if you're just masking but not doing anything else, that's still certainly very important. But if you can mask and distance and ventilate and so on, the more you do, 
the more powerful your protections will be. You know, certainly if nobody's in a mask or few people are in a mask in a classroom, it would make sense that ventilation, you know, almost making that space be as much like the outdoors as possible is really important. If every single kid in a class and the teacher are wearing their masks and they're wearing them correctly, it can still be very beneficial to have ventilation, but it's probably less critical than it would be if you have not everybody wearing a mask. Let's talk about testing in schools. Are there schools that test their students regularly? There are some that do this sort of random testing. So they might test a subset of students every week or every month. That has been tried. You know, some might try and test everybody over some sort of a time span. And they're doing that for different purposes. Sometimes it's just to kind of gauge how many people are coming in with the virus who who don't know it. Mm hmm. So instead of surveillance, there are researchers who are looking at schools using testing, trying to find out more about what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that, I think, is really important and has a lot of potential. I think in the course of reporting the story and even before reporting the story, it was clear to us that there is one huge unanswered question about COVID-19 in school, and that is how much do people in a school who are asymptomatic, spread the virus in that school, especially if you have really good mitigation measures. So if you have masks and distancing and all the rest of it, and somebody comes in and they have COVID-19 and they don't know it, is that a risk or not? Maybe it's not much of a risk. We really don't know yet. So that's something that testing can answer because it can identify not only those asymptomatic cases, but it can trace whether an outbreak comes of them. So there are efforts to sort of regularly in a research more of a research setting, test people in schools and staff members and even family members for both the virus and antibodies, for example, and to try and determine if there is spread in schools that we are not seeing without that testing. There are also efforts to use testing to answer other types of research questions. So one thing that's been really tough for schools that we heard in the course of our reporting are the quarantine rules. You know, if you have someone testing positive in a school, you might have to quarantine that whole class. You might have to quarantine that whole grade. You might have to quarantine multiple teachers. It can be really disruptive to have to switch back and forth. And the quarantine is often for two weeks is the standard now in most places. So one question is, can we reduce that quarantine time safely? There's one study that hasn't started yet, but is hoping to start soon in Montreal, where that's a question they're looking at. You know, can we use some extra testing to reduce the quarantine period from, say, 14 days to seven days with a test before returning to school? The question that's on a lot of people's minds these days is we're having community spread. We're having a surge all around us. Can we keep schools open? Should we keep schools open? I know there's not going to be just a blanket yes or no answer, what should we pay attention to when thinking about the way schools are operating in places with big community spread? Yeah, it's so hard. We all want answers. There's no clear answer. I would say, though, one slight shift that we've seen in how to try and address this question is that previously, and to some extent still, the way to determine whether to keep a school open was based on, say, that city or that county, that region, and how it's doing. How many cases does it have? What's the positivity rate? Those metrics that we've all been hearing about now for months and months. What are those metrics? Is there some sort of cutoff at which point, boom, we close the school? That was pretty much the situation earlier. Some places are still following that. I think others feel we want to do almost more of a microanalysis. If you have a whole city with a high positivity rate, let's say, but the school is drawing from a small neighborhood 
And that neighborhood has a much lower positivity rate and far fewer cases. You know, I think you can make more of an argument that that schools can stay open. We can almost look neighborhood by neighborhood or sort of cluster of neighborhoods by cluster of neighborhoods. We also can look at what's happening in a school. So is a school thriving and doing all right, even if there are more cases around it? Maybe its mitigation measures are really working well. On the other hand, if a school starts having case after case and has more and more quarantines, you know, that can be a sign that things aren't going so well. Another concern that I think some people had is contact tracing and how functional it is in an area. And what's happened in many places is as cases have surged, it's been a lot harder for the public health officials to keep up with contact tracing and to trace every case. And there are some people who feel that if contact tracing starts to fall apart, then it is time to think about closing your school because you need to have that in place and, and you know, working all right to keep a school open. So there, there are more focused things that we can look at, but I don't know that there's always a right answer. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to this story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a look at why leaves fall off trees and how their annual cycles fit into our understanding of global climate cycles. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This Week in Science, Constantine Zoner and colleagues published a study on when trees drop their leaves. This is phonology, the study of timing, the study of seasonal or cyclic things. To me, this study is asking the question, will trees save us from climate change? I'll talk about how that might be possible a little bit later, but I'll give the answer, the main answer away. Basically, no. Trees are not going to save us from climate change. Well, yeah, that's how you could put it. The big thing here is if we want to tackle climate change, if we want to understand climate change, we need to simply know what will happen in the future and how our ecosystems will respond to climate change. And therefore, the main question here was, can we contribute to a better prediction of ecosystems and in this case of temperate forest ecosystems? And, and can we contribute to how much carbon they will absorb? So essentially how productive they will be in the future. That was Constantine, one of the authors on the paper. When he says productive here, he means taking CO2 out of the air and making things with it. But let's go to the basics. Why? Why do trees stop producing? Why do their leaves shut off in the first place? Trees lose their leaves basically so they don't freeze and get the tree equivalent of frostbitten. Because otherwise it's like sticking a water bottle in your freezer that's a little over full. And so when that water freezes, it causes the cells to explode. There's actually no repairing that. It's just completely lost. You can't really effectively duct tape your water bottle back together. That was Christy Rollinson, a forest ecologist at the Morton Arboretum in Illinois. She wrote a commentary piece on the new paper. So what do we know about potential triggers for trees to pack up their leaf nutrients and drop the dead weight? Here are a few options from Christy. The conventional framework has really been that because losing your leaves is an adaptation to stress to so that extremely cold temperature, 
stressed trees are going to lose their leaves earlier. So typically it's been thought that as the days get shorter, there's not as much light, leaves aren't as effective, or the temperatures start getting cold, the tree starts worrying, uh, you know, to anthropomorphize, the trees start worrying about that cold coming. Constantine says we know leaf out, the unfurling of new leaf buds, is moving in time. It's getting earlier. At the moment, leaf out is already happening about two weeks earlier than this was the case 100 years ago. The next big question is what will happen in autumn? Spring? Mostly predictable. Fall? Not so much. So spring tends to be relatively synchronous across species and across locations. You know, temperatures get warm and most trees in areas say, oh yeah, I got this, time to grow. Fall is such a mess, relatively speaking. So it's much more idiosyncratic. You will have trees of different species changing colors weeks difference in time. And then kind of the maddening part as a researcher is that individual trees won't change their color at different times. And so this has kind of been one of the challenges of fall is that it's so less synchronous. And so it's so much harder to predict when it's going to happen. We don't know what happens if spring is earlier. Will fall be earlier? Some think that leaf hang time or productivity of these trees will go on longer as climate changes. So earlier spring, later fall. To figure out which is actually happening, Constantine and his colleagues needed a lot of people to go on a lot of walks in the woods. It's based a lot on citizen science. There's people going out every year and they are just enjoying to observe nature and to observe when spring leave out is happening. So when trees emerge their leaves in spring and they also observe when these leaves start to color in autumn. It's actually a really long-term database. It goes back as far as 65 years, so it essentially covered the period from 1948 to present and was based on almost half a million individual phenological records. And with this huge database, we were then able to find these strong correlative patterns. The group also grew young trees in climate-controlled chambers to see which factors were most important to leaf shutdown also sometimes called leaf senescence. Some of these trees, they experienced higher CO2 levels. Some of these trees experienced higher temperatures during the growing season. And some of these trees, they experienced a combination of both higher temperatures and higher CO2 levels. When they looked across these approaches, both the Citizen Science Project and the Climate Control Chambers, what they see is the key driver of leaf change is productivity. The trees have a sense for how much carbon they've taken up, and at a certain point, they stop. We see that this is a huge contributor to the timing of leaf senescence. We still see that other factors, they also matter. It's more like an interaction between autumn temperatures and the productivity before. So essentially, it's like the extent to which trees require autumn cooling to shed their leaves depends on how much productivity we had before. One thing Christy pointed out is that the fact that productivity is so important to when the leaves change color helps explain why there's so much variation in the timing from tree to tree or species to species. You might have noticed that one tree that just went super early, it's an orange flame in a sea of green. This helps explain that. That was what was really exciting about this for me, because we know that where a tree is going, how well its roots are able to tap into water or in an urban environment, 
is it in a spot where it's getting constantly, you know, hit by the snowplow coming through? All of these little factors that can affect how well a tree grows, I think that's going to play a role in when it changes color. And it's not just how stressed it is, but all the pluses as well. Trees are individuals just like us. And so for better or for worse, they all do something slightly different. But this helps us know what we should look at and what we should measure to get at some of those differences. So productivity helps explain some individual tree-to-tree differences. But this lesson can go broader, too, from European trees to the whole swath of the planet covered in temperate forest. These observations, these empirical correlations, they should also hold for most of the trees that we have in North America and also in Asia. The whole temperate region should respond in a way that we see it. We are at the moment also undertaking additional studies in which we try to test whether these mechanisms really hold for the whole temperate zone. And then this should really have a a considerable effect on the global climate system because the temperate forest ecosystem is is a huge contributor to annual productivity and annual carbon uptake of trees. If we think about leaf senescence, it has been estimated that a one day delay in leaf senescence will increase the carbon uptake of one hectare of forest by almost 100 kilograms. And if we scale this to the whole temperate forest ecosystem, this will have a huge effect also then on the global carbon cycle. If we look at like the annual oscillations in carbon uptake, we see that the CO2 levels considerably change between winter and summer. And this is solely due to the leave out and the growing season period of temperate and boreal trees. Essentially, because there's so much more temperate and boreal trees only in the northern hemisphere and not in the southern hemisphere, we see these really huge changes between seasons in global CO2 levels. These trees do have a big impact on global carbon. And we know from other studies that more CO2 in the air means the trees can grow faster. But if you think of a tree as a bucket, you're pouring water or carbon into that bucket, you hit a point where it's kind of out of room. So a bucket can only hold so much, even if you still have that hose going. And so this really means that while increasing atmospheric CO2 or if growing seasons get longer, it might benefit a tree a little bit, but there's a limit. It can't store more carbon indefinitely because there needs to be somewhere to put or use the carbon. And what happens when the trees let go of that carbon? Within ecosystem, there's, of course, a huge variety of other factors that then lead to the release of carbon. We have soil respiration, we have plant respiration. To be able to realistically predict carbon capture of trees in the future, we also need to know when these trees are going to die. And if an increase in productivity maybe even leads to an earlier mortality in these trees, which would then lead to an earlier release of all the carbon that has been previously captured. So all in all, these factors as a total need to be taken into account to really know the carbon sink that plants will have in the future and how much this will help us in the fight against climate change. So, no, trees won't save us from climate change. But on the flip side, this also means fall won't change very much. It unfortunately kind of tamps down some of the optimism that plants or trees can be the solution to everything. So it really comes back to, we can't just think about where we can put this extra carbon, but really need to be thinking about putting less carbon 
into the atmosphere, at least we now know that there's kind of a limit to when fall is going to happen. And so that really helps us think. And even for from a non-carbon perspective, botanic gardens, places like New England, places like the Morton Arboretum, we think a lot about when fall color is going to happen for tourism. And so in one sense, it's a little optimistic. It's like, okay, so fall isn't going to change dramatically to be later. And so we can kind of count, it seems, on it not shifting dramatically one way or the other because the climate conditions plus the growing season conditions might kind of cancel each other out a little bit. That was Christy Rollinson, a forest ecologist at the Morton Arboretum in Illinois. She wrote the commentary piece. And we also had Constantine Zoner, a lead scientist in the Institute of Integrative Biology at ETH Zurich. He was an author on the research. You can find links to both their articles at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Up next, book's host, Kiki Sanford, talks with Ruth DeFries about her book, What Would Nature Do? A Guide for Our Uncertain Times. Welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford. Have you ever looked at a problem and asked, how would nature solve this? Dr. Ruth DeFries, a professor of ecology and sustainable development at Columbia University, looked at the sources of uncertainty in humanity's future and did just that. The result is her latest book, What Would Nature Do? A Guide for Uncertain Times. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kiki. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. What led you to look at all the uncertainty that lies in front of us? Humans are so good at finding solutions and also so good at creating problems. And we continuously go through that cycle. So where we are right now is we're coming off of the 20th century, which was full of solutions, full of technology, full of efficiency, full of improvements in life expectancy and health and reduction of poverty and lots of benefits. But the problem that has come along with that is we have become such a tightly connected world where if some shock happens, it just spreads and ricochets and cascades. So that's our problem as a civilization now that has been created from this tightly connected, efficient world. So I wanted to think in this book about how we think differently about our institutions and about our society and about how we organize ourselves and our relationship with the world to live through this time of uncertainty and shocks, which we know are going to be coming at us in the future. How do we create immunity in our society to be resilient to those sorts of uncertainties? The prologue of your book pays attention to the pandemic that we're currently going through. How did your mindset change between sitting down to write the book and then having the pandemic arise in the midst of publication? Oh, gosh. Well, I wrote the book before the pandemic. And literally, purely coincidentally, I was sending the final manuscript into the publisher that week in March, when all the shutdowns were happening and COVID really came into our lives. And it was just ironic and coincidental because I spent quite a bit in the book trying to be convincing that we live with these uncertainties. And here we are with this proof <laughs> that we have these uncertainties coming at us all the time. We've seen the debilitating effects of this pandemic on our global networks and supply chains. 
These aren't natural systems, but what can we learn from nature about fixing them? One of the chapters in the book is about how nature or evolution has come to identify the types of networks that enable persistence through uncertainties. So the key example there is a leaf vein. So if you look very carefully at a leaf vein, you will see that it is not an efficient design. It has a lot of redundancy, a lot of small veins that are looping around all over the the leaf. And that's to carry water throughout the leaf and to bring back sugars to the plant. So that's very essential for a plant that that network functions. The most efficient way to design that network would be some kind of hub and spoke or think of an airline map, something like that. But what evolution shows us is that that redundancy in networks can really pay off. So if you think about a leaf with that network, if an insect takes a bite out of that leaf and and severs one vein or some of the veins, there are options. There are different ways to route the water and the sugars through the leaf. What we've seen with the toilet paper and the hand sanitizer and the webcams and all of these shortages that have come up during the pandemic is that our networks have become so efficient that they are also fragile that we don't have redundancy. But isn't redundancy also costly? It requires investment. I have a a story or two about how people have learned that that investment in redundancy does pay off in the design of networks. There's a story about Paul Barron and the design of the internet, which initially, while an efficient sort of communications network design seemed the way to go, his work showed and ultimately proved in the design of the internet that building in redundancy at a cost is what enables a network to persist through shocks and uncertainties. I think that's what we're learning in the pandemic. Can you talk about how the topics in the book align with conservation and how that can benefit us all as humans? Well, conservation is about keeping diversity alive, keeping diversity of species, keeping genetic diversity alive within species, keeping our remaining wild places, which are the stores of diversity. So working in conservation is built on that premise that diversity has value both directly economically, for instance, different crops and different medicinal species, but also has a value in and of itself by keeping diversity alive because we don't understand what exactly it means for us if we lose that diversity. There are millions of species on this planet and we haven't even identified a a fraction of them. So our understanding of the way the world works and how important different species are, the way they interact with each other is so rudimentary that it certainly seems foolhardy to allow those species and genetic resources and those places to go extinct. In the book, you talk about the failed 1991 Biosphere 2 experiment in Arizona that attempted to have eight people survive in a supposedly self-sustaining ecosystem within a sealed dome. In your view, what did that experiment actually show us? So this was the experiment to build a closed system, grow all their food, recycle water, recycle their waste, and not have any outside support coming in 
for two years. And it's an amazing thought experiment. But what it showed was, again, that our knowledge is so rudimentary. Do we know enough to recreate the ecosystems and the biosphere that is our support system? And some ecologists would say yes, but I don't think so. Part of how Biosphere did go wrong was from a management perspective. And one of your chapters is about bottom-up versus top-down control of systems. Are there examples of top-down control in nature? So in nature, we don't see top-down control. We think about a queen in an ant's nest or other social insects like termites, that there's a queen that is controlling the movements of all of the individuals. But that is not the way that evolution has evolved. The individuals, the ants and the termites, individuals are making instinctual decisions based on their ability to perceive their very local surroundings. So the way that ants can march in a straight line, it's not because the queen sitting in the middle of the nest can uh, dictate which way each individual ant is moving, but each individual ant is picking up on the pheromones and leaving pheromones that send signals to the other ants. And the emerging property is that they mark in a straight line. But humans aren't social insects. How does this apply to us? People can collectively manage their own resources if they have the ability to make their own decisions and organize from the bottom up. And that goes along with the wonderful work of Eleanor Ostrom, who is Nobel Prize winner in economics, studied how communities self-organize to collectively manage their resources. And she articulated the conditions that make that possible which is very counter to the 20th century view of the tragedy of the common, that people, if left on their own, will destroy their common resources. So she first showed this in Los Angeles policing and water management in Los Angeles and different communities that manage their forests and fisheries and identified these conditions that's more like nature, where communities and individuals are making decisions based on their perceptions of their local environment and what works for them rather than a top-down control in some far-off capital city that doesn't know or understand those local conditions. Why do you think it is so hard for people to think about our world in an ecological way? So we're so used to thinking about efficiency as the guiding paradigm that just comes from our 20th century focus on technology and efficiency and getting to the easiest answer in the shortest amount of time. And that's the kind of thinking that permeates our our view of the world, at least our, our Western view of the world. And when you think about redundancy, it does have a cost. If a leader invests in redundancy, he or she might not see that payoff in his or her time in office. It seems messy and wasteful if you think about the world as a static place. But once you start to see the world as a dynamic place with all kinds of connections, then these kinds of investments start to make sense. That if we get out of our efficiency way of viewing the world, that these strategies of redundancy and bottom-up decisions and investments in diversity, we can see how society as a whole over the long run can benefit. 
What do you hope readers gain from your book? Well, I think people are seeing that we're facing an uncertain world, whether that's climate extremes or these political upheavals that we might not have expected or diseases or economic collapse or any number of uncertain possibilities that are in our future and thinking, how do we rethink our world? And while it's very hard for an individual to change the world and, you know, build a sea bank, which would preserve genetic resources for our crops or change fire management policy, and, you know, those are very hard things for any one individual to influence. But if we support the leaders that think beyond efficiency kind of paradigm of the world or short term thinking and collectively work as a society to think about how we want to organize ourselves and support the leaders that can think with us about the way we structure our institutions and structure our relationship with nature. Then I know this sounds very ethereal, but society is made up of individuals. And, and that's what I hope for the book is just to offer, not to prescribe, not to say that anyone should or shouldn't do any particular thing, but to offer some ways of viewing and, and thinking about the world and how we see our future as a civilization. Well, I feel like your timing couldn't have been better. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kiki. It's been, it's been great to talk to you. And thank you for joining me for this interview with Ruth DeFries about her book, What Would Nature Do? A Guide for Uncertain Times. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and I hope that you'll join us again for a peek between the pages of another science book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you can find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe on the site and anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.